Our scripture the old, from the Old Testament is from Proverbs 31. Open your mouth for the dumb, for the rights of all who are left desolate. Open your mouth, judge righteously, maintain the rights of the poor and needy. And then from Luke 12, But he who did not know and did what deserved a beating shall receive a light beating. Everyone to whom much is given, of him much will be required. And of him whom men commit much, they will demand all the more. May the Lord bless to our hearts and our minds this reading of his word. So in this series on the parable of the Good Samaritan, uh, this is the fourth part. The first week we looked at the actual story of the Good Samaritan about the priest and the Levite who passed by the man beaten up by the side of the road and about how the one who stopped to help was the least likely one that we would never expect, the dreaded Samaritan, the enemy of all the Jews, uh, was the one who was kind. The, the second week we looked at the question of how can we be Good Samaritans to those who were sick? Uh, and then the third week we looked at how can we be Samaritans in, for the force of justice in the world? This week, we're looking at how to be a Samaritan to the poor. And then next week, the final week, we will look at how to be good Samaritans to our planet, our planet Earth here. I have to uh, admit that you're not going to learn anything new this morning. Uh, there's nothing new here. Uh, that, and that's okay, because preaching often is not sharing a new idea but it is simply reminding you of something you already know, but it's too important to forget. And so today, we look at the heart of Jesus' ministry here. By making the teachings of Jesus a religion instead of a path to be lived, we avoid the way of Jesus altogether, said Richard Rohr. Because, see, Jesus didn't ask to be worshipped. He asked to be followed, followed. He didn't say, come and worship me. He said, come and follow me. And to be a follower of Jesus means to be engaged in the kind of things that Jesus was engaged with. And when you look at his ministry, he spent a lot of time helping sick people and a lot of time helping poor people. That was central to who he was about. And so our job is to continue that way. Jesus, uh, we don't know much about his first 30 years. We have the little stories about his birth. Then we have one story from when he was 12 years old, and then this, it picks up again when he's 30 years old. The one thing we do know was that he was a carpenter for those first years of his life. And so at the age of 30, he puts down the carpentry tools, and he marches into the synagogue, and he gives his first statement. This is the beginning of what we call his ministry, which lasted for three years. And here's the first words that came out of Jesus' mouth when he began his ministry. The Spirit of the Lord is upon me, because he has anointed me to bring good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim release to the captives and recovery of sight to the blind, to let the oppressed go free, and to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. That's as close to a mission statement as we can get when it comes to Jesus. He's saying at the very beginning of his ministry, that he has come to bring good news to the poor. In Proverbs, we, re we read, Speak for justice, stand up for the poor and destitute. And from Luke 12, From everyone to whom much has been given, much will be required. The one thing that just about every biblical scholar can agree on 
is that the central element of Jesus' ministry was to serve the poor. So let's look at that for today. A quick look at the numbers. There are approximately 7.8 billion people in the world. Out of that 7.8 billion, 26% live on less than $3 a day. 46% live on less than $5 a day. So almost half the world's population is in poverty, living on less than $5 a day. But the good news, and we, we, can, we can never forget this, it's getting better. Those numbers 10 years ago or 20 years ago were far worse. The percentage of people living in poverty declines every year. The percentage of people who, who die from not having clean water, who desire, from diseases, it decreases every year because of the efforts of churches, NGOs around the world doing good things. So while the, the problem is still huge, there's a lot of people out there that don't have enough, we need to understand that the efforts that we have been making are making a difference in the world. And we just have to keep on doing it. Jeffrey Sachs, who is an economist with the United Nations, and they have developed the Millennium Development Goals that have been agreed upon by the United Nations, these group of economists and things, say that to solve the major problems of the world would cost approximately 70 to $80 billion a year. That's to uh, meet the most essential human needs, clean water, sanitation, prenatal and infant maternal care, basic education, immunizations, and long-term development between 70 and $80 billion a year, which sounds like a huge amount of money when you consider that the U.S. military budget in one year alone is $636 billion. So compared to that, it's a small amount of money that, to actually to be able to eliminate most of the, the world's greatest problems. It's very, very doable. We just do not have yet the political will in our country to do that. Or as individuals, most Americans give less than 2% of their income to all charitable causes. So if that were to increase, if governments were to begin to care, we could make a huge dent in this problem of poverty in the world. One other problem about poverty is that it, oftentimes it's invisible. Martin Luther King said, The poor have been shut out of our minds and driven from the mainstream of our societies because we have allowed them to become invisible. Ultimately, a great nation is a compassionate nation. No nation can be great if it does not have a concern for the least of these. In an ironic way, you know, all these homeless camps that we see around us, all the people sleeping on the streets and tents and stuff like that. In an ironic way, that may be a blessing because it takes the problem of poverty and homelessness out of being hidden and makes it more visible. And perhaps the visibility of that problem will cause people to try to do something about it. That could be the good thing that would come out of this terrible situation that we have in our society. Another king, the author Stephen King, was invited to give the commencement speech at Vassar University, and he called it Scaring You to Action. Uh, he had an incident in his life in which, in 1999, he was hit by a car. He was walking along the road in his, by his home in Maine, and a car slammed into him. He nearly died. He said in the speech, I had a MasterCard in my wallet, 
But when you're lying in the ditch with broken glass in your hair, no one accepts MasterCard. His insight is that we come into this world naked and broke, and we, we may be dressed when we go out, but we're just as broke. Of all the power, he says, that most Americans have, the greatest is undoubtedly the power of compassion, the ability to give. We have enormous resources in this country, but they're only on loan. They're only yours to give for a short while. I want you to consider making your life one long gift to others, he told the graduates. And why not? All you have is on loan anyway. All that lasts is what you pass on. The rest is smoke and mirrors. Stephen King invited the audience to imagine a typical American backyard. Mom, dad, the kids, enjoying a delicious barbecue next to the swimming pool. And standing around that fence, looking in, are emaciated men, women, starving children. They are silent. They only watch. I don't know if Stephen King is a Christian or not, but I know one thing. When it comes to the message of Jesus about the poor, he gets it. He gets it truly. And so, the, the other problem that we have in dealing with poverty is the untruth of the crowd. Reinhold Niebuhr wrote a book called Moral Man, Immoral Society, in which he argued that it's easier for an individual to act morally than for a group, that there are things in a group dynamic which make it more difficult for moral action. Or Soren Kierkegaard said, the crowd is untruth. The truth comes only in personal terms. And so we, we know that there's a, there's a name that probably only people my age or older will remember, and the name is Kitty Genovese. For those of you that are young, I'll tell you her story. She was a young woman who lived in Queens, New York, and in 1964, she was stabbed to death in broad daylight on the sidewalk in front of her apartment. The New York Times reported that 38 people were witnesses to the crime, and yet not one person intervened or even called the police. They developed a term out of that incident called the bystander effect, which says that when there are multiple people who are bystanders, it lessens the, the, the chance that a person will act or intervene. When there's only one person observing something like that, then it's pretty obvious that you gotta do something. But if there's a whole bunch of people, then people tend to hold back and wait for someone more qualified to, in, to get involved. That's why many crime stories have the sentence, there were many bystanders, but no witnesses. Because no one was willing to come forward and to get involved in that situation. They held back in that way. So as Dostoevsky said, Everyone is responsible for everyone else, but I am most responsible. Jesus told an amazing story about a rich man and a poor man called Lazarus. The rich man lived in a gated community. He had a gate in front of his house to keep out the riffraff. Lazarus, the poor man, sat in front of the gate sat there, and it says that he lived off the scraps from the rich man's table. So he's there outside the gate, living there off the scrap, off the garbage that is taken out. And in Jesus' story, they both die on the same day. And the rich man goes to hell, and Lazarus goes to heaven. And the rich man looks up, 
and sees Lazarus and he sees Abraham. He's a religious man. He knows his prophets. He knows who they are. So he was a religious guy, but unfortunately, he never had eyes to see the poor man outside the gate. He never really saw Lazarus. And he finds that the chasm he built between him and Lazarus wasn't just a gap between him and his neighbor. It was a gap between himself and God. When people go and volunteer in Mother Teresa's hospice in Calcutta, and when they're getting ready to leave and go back to their home, she would always say to them, now when you return, find your own Calcutta. Find your own Calcutta. Wherever it is, because there's people in need everywhere. We're right here. Every Sunday you hear the list of opportunities to, whether it's city team ministry or Project Peace, any, they're all ministries to find your own Calcutta, your own way to make a big difference in this world. Finally, a student once asked the great anthropologist Margaret Mead, what was the earliest sign of civilization in any culture? He thought that perhaps the, the answer would be a, uh, a cooking implement like a clay pot or a tool like a fish hook or a grinding stone. But she said, no, the greatest, the earliest sign of civilization is a healed femur. A femur, you know, the big bone in your leg? A healed femur. She explained that there are no healed femurs to be found where the law of the jungle, the survival of the fittest reigns. A healed femur shows that someone cared, that someone had to do that injured person's hunting and gathering while their leg healed. Thus, the evidence of compassion is the first sign of civilization. It is also the first sign of being a follower of Jesus Christ. As Luke said, from everyone to whom much has been given, much will be required. And from the one to whom much has been entrusted, even more will be demanded. How can we ever thank God for that burden, which turns out to be our greatest blessing? Amen.